Hello and welcome to a very special episode from Edge of Empire. As we make the inexorable slide into 2022, we find ourselves with an incredible anniversary on the horizon. One that unfortunately won't be worthy of bank holidays or big firework displays costing millions. But one that should nonetheless be celebrated. This is of course the 50th anniversary of the release of Lucidic Injectors by Orlock Powerfist. To celebrate this momentous occasion, we have tracked down interviews with current and former band members, as well as archival recordings from the band's last 50 years. This is all for your listening pleasure. So, brace yourselves to the ride of your lives, and as their 1971 UK number 27 single stated, keep fisting. Powerfist is a goliath of the British music rock scene, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees and a band who have never been far from the public eye or far from a scandal. As a band they have transcended musical genres time and time again and although never well received critically their legendary live shows, eclectic set of band members and a string of multi-platinum selling albums helped All Up Powerfest create a globally loyal fan base. To celebrate this anniversary, the band are releasing a special edition of the album which catapulted them to mega stardom back in 1972, which includes never-before-heard excerpts from the recording process, and the band all agreed to sit down and chat to us about their careers. Formed in the early 1960s by singer and harpsichord enthusiast Chris Gibson, along with bassist and bassoon player Clive Gale, two musicians who had often found themselves filling in part-time in other bands. They decided that it was time to start their own venture and placed an advert in the music papers looking for a drummer and a lead guitarist to complement a pair of them. After a couple of weeks with limited response, they finally received the answers they were looking for. They would be in the place of Alan Bradstock, a drummer from Yorkshire and Essex, and Brian Madden, a guitarist who at that time had no fixed abode. Yeah, so um, I'm Brian Madden. I was the lead guitar player for Lot Pathist. Um, all the way from from the start of the band, really. My name is Alan Blackstock, and I am the drummer for Orlock Powerfist. In fact, I have been since 1968. There was a little bit of a gap, but we won't go into that right now. Hello, I'm Clive Howlingale, bass player and uh, bassoon operator for the for the Powerfist. Yeah, that's me. I I grew up with with rock and roll coming through, um, 
from from the United States and starting in the, in the UK as well. And unlike lots of people, what I grew up with, I wanted to be in a band. Well, you can tell by my voice, I, I was never going to be frontman because no one wants to really listen to this kind of, uh, this kind of voice, which was a bit disappointing, really, because I liked showing off. So I thought, well, what's the next best thing I could do is I could learn to play a guitar and I could be like a lead guitar player. And, and you know, I, I, I thought that would be a good thing. The music for me started from a very young age, like all toddlers. You know, we all end up banging the spoons on things, trying to make as much noise as possible. But I could hold a rhythm. My mother would often play her records, and I would be beating perfectly in time, whether, you know, regardless of who it was. And that was you know, when I was a young lad down in Essex. And you might not be able to tell from the accent now, but that's originally where I'm from. I mean, my father was the, the ferry master for Harwich Harbour Ferry. In fact, he was until he died. I grew up not, not a million miles away from Brian, but we didn't know each other then. And uh, I got during the war, I was sent north as an evacuee up to Yorkshire. And, uh, you know, I never looked back. I really picked up the accent and I've, I've never been able to shift it. And, you know, being up there, you had the, the, the heritage of colliery bands and things like that. And, you know, that's where it developed from me as a young lad. Um, up until I saw the invitation uh, that Chris put out when he was looking for a band in Birmingham. And I, I, I travelled across the, the, the Pennines to get there and, and you know... The family that I was with, you know, because my parents are staying in Essex and I'd kind of just end up staying in Yorkshire. You know, they were aghast that I would possibly leave, but uh, I had to follow my dream to be in a rock and roll band. And when I got there, it was, uh, you know, uh, Brian had uh, had seen the advert as well as uh, uh, Clive and and the four of us just clicked together and and it was quite quite a magical time, in fact, for all of us. So I think I first started... You know, in music, when I was a young boy, really, we used to have a little sing-song around my grandma's piano. Uh, you know, she was pretty posh, actually. She had, she had running water and everything. And, uh, yeah, so that, so that was where it kind of started, to be honest with you. I always had a little affinity for music. I used to play along. She got me a little ukulele, I think, one year. Might have been, you know, early 1950s, I suppose. And, uh, and then from there, really, it was... Uh, it was just, uh, you know, listening to the bands that we were growing up with at the time, you know. So quite a, you know, late on, you know, the kind of whole rock and roll thing was great, you know, Elvis and all that. It's lovely, you know. We had a good time when I was a young, young nipper, dancing around to Jailhouse Rock and whatever. But, uh, yeah, I think what I started to get really interested in it was when my dad told me that I was going to inherit the abattoir business. And I just thought, gee, I'm not doing that no way, mate. You know, I've dodged too many I mean, sheep killed in my lifetime to want to be able to do that full time. So it really was a choice between either going into the slaughterhouse business or trying my luck uh, a local uh, sort of, you know, old people's kind of dinner and dance thing, I suppose. And um, and that's what I kind of did. That's why I earned my money, you know, just you know, playing along to that. But... You know, I knew it wasn't really for me, and uh, it was just sort of by chance, I suppose, that I started to sort of knock around with some other musicians, you know, session musicians used to come and go, 
and and that's how I kind of met Gibbo. You know, he he was he was always on the scene. You know, everybody knew him. You know, round our way, and uh, you know, he was a complete lunatic, if I'm honest. And uh, anyway, he was one of the first to sort of really get into music in a big way. You know, in the in the 60s, we're talking about, you know, late 60s. Um, you know, with you know the, the Beatles and and whatnot, the Stones and and everything else that and, was going on. Yeah, it, it all kind of fell into place when I when I met the rest of the lads and and we got and we started doing our our stuff and we got into like the the, the swing kind of thing like only Bing Crosby and the violin and the violin was 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 my suggestion really because I, I I got into it to. I got into Vivalin in a kind of weird kind of way, to, to basically to annoy me old man. We started doing uh, Vera Lynn and, and being Crosby single covers because basically they were the only songs that the four of us all knew quite easily. And it kind of escalated from there. We had a wonderful time. We'd pop them out. And, you know, at that point, we're still in post-war England. Very popular hits. And the crowds used to go crazy for And that's all. how we kind of started and, doing uh, that sort of thing and we, we we jazzed them up like you know what would Viva Lynn sound like if if she was played by by Elvis or or by Chuck Berry or something like that originally calling themselves the Bell Bottom Four until a naval themed barbershop quartet threatened to sue them they then started touring under the name of Orlock Powerfist doing the so around the greater Birmingham area which was then considered to be the epicentre of the heavy metal movement in the UK. It was here that the band came across their manager, one Peter Gervais de Havilland Sloop, of the Gloucester Havilland Sloops. Sadly, Peter passed away in 2011, but we do have archival recordings that he made about his time with the band. Yeah, so, so how did I become involved with the band? Well... I'd recently kind of graduated, graduated slash expelled from Eton. So I was a young chap, not really sure what I was supposed to be doing. And I was rapidly, you know, running out of money. I tried sort of hanging around with um, Lord Litchfield, you know, as a sort of photog- photographic assistant, uh, mainly because I, I rather fancied some of the ladies, if I'm completely truthful. But anyway... With the old school tie network, I'd managed to get a get a little gig, you know, actually doing some work for a living, which was terribly shocking, if I'm completely truthful. So I really wanted to make sure that whatever I did to earn, you know, as much money as possible, it involved me doing as little as possible. And uh, being an A&R man for a you know, record company seemed absolutely perfect. I thought probably next best thing would be to go into management um, in some form. Sort of beginning, I had to go to Birmingham, which was a shock. Let me tell you, even in the in the 1970s, I, I was terrible. I thought I'd gone into another country altogether. I mean, obviously being brought up in, in the on the country estate that was literally most of Gloucestershire, this this was a little bit of a culture shock to me. You know, the sort of back streets. What of used Birmingham. to happen was we used to follow some of the bands around Birmingham. Uh, you know, mainly the kind of heavier stuff of the time. You know, uh, my friend Wilco, he was the bouncer at the uh, Gentleman's Relish uh, Strip Club and uh, Pie Shop just off Northort Street. And uh, we used to use him, you see. He would get a couple of, you know, 
tickets or, or more popular actually was the pies themselves and we'd use those to like uh, you know bribe our way into the backstage area so yeah i saw a couple of those bands during the time it was great like you know it's a really exciting time to be in birmingham and uh yeah some good good times but uh oh my word the things we saw daddy back i might get shot or worse when i had to insist upon you know getting a bouncer or an armed guard either was fine i thought probably next best thing would be to go into management so there it was i met uh, chris gibson and the rest of the orlock power fist i managed to convince the band that i had all the connections in the world in the music industry and that if they stuck with me i would make them all millionaires i'm definitely right up there in the top 100 of millionaires it was pure circumstance you know we were there we were playing our gig he just approached us at the end of the night and, you know, he, he, he told us all these wonderful stories about all these people that he knew. And, and uh, you know, also, you know, we could see other bands, you know, starting to make a few quid, you know, like Black Sabbath and the like, you know, they were Birmingham, you know, John Bonham and, uh, you know, Planty, all from Birmingham you know, and a black country. So, yeah, like I said, given the choice, that's what we did. So, yeah, it was just lucky, really, you know, that happened to be in the right place. This band, who, who were, were terrible, frankly. I, I couldn't stand anything they did, but uh, people seemed to like them. Very strange. So, so yes. Yeah, if I'm honest, our relationship may not have worked out as well as we'd hoped, but without him, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. We'd have just been like Jimmy Smith and the, and the Fatal Five, who I think still perform in one of the pubs that we used to play in. And, you know... Um, I, I'm very grateful for what he did for us. There's one or two questionable decisions that have been made business-wise, but, you know, without him, the, the band would never have been quite what it was. Now, with the manager, it was at this point that the band would start to define their own sound. Releasing Enter the Ferryman, named in honour of Blackstock's father, it would sadly not chart in the UK but marked the band moving away from the early post-war-influenced music and taking more on from the emerging bands at the time. It would be on their second album, Fist of Love, that things took a turn for the heavy, and swiftly followed by the Orlock State of Mind album, both of which were met with utter derision by some of the music press. In fact, the Melody Maker's 1970 review of Fist of Love was described as possibly beyond the Geneva Convention's guidance when it comes to crimes against humanity. However, the band had captured the hearts of the people, garnering huge national and continental support. The high point of this so-called gold-plated metal era of All Up Power Fist came with the release of Space Fisting, which, inspired by the work of bands like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and their album Tarkus, it was a triple LP concept album the main running theme of which was about a giant robot who, with the intention of conquering Earth, arrives on the planet and falls in love with a marmoset. The giant robot is tricked into believing that the marmoset has been killed during his attempt to conquer Earth. This, in turn, caused the robot to go on a galactic rampage and accidentally does end up killing the marmoset in the process. We have a small sample of one of the tracks off that album. I travel to this world in search of conquest. The old 
1971 Space Fisting was a commercial success, never a critical success. However, it did inspire the band to become a little bit more creative. In 1972, the band would go to their second major metamorphosis, transforming themselves from metal giants to jazz funk explorers. A change that wasn't universally loved by their fans, but a majority of them stuck with them. So, yeah, how did, uh, you know, we get the epiphany around jazz? Well, it's, it's a funny story, really. Uh, what happened is we used to have a kind of a bit of a residency at the old Grouse pub. And that was a, you know, a local kind of place where a lot of bands would go. And there were different bands on different nights. Anyway, Thursday night was kind of like, you know, the heavy night. So there was a, it was always busy, a lot of people in there. And, uh, you know, it was a bit rowdy. You know? Once a week, <clears throat> there'd be a special jazz night. And we would pop in. Occasionally we got misbooked for that night, which always made things a little bit tricky, given the fact that we were on occasion still pumping out the Vera Lynn stuff. You know, that, that If You Love Me Really Love Me singles like that that would have been big, big in the 50s. It wasn't really what that crowd of the jazz night were there for, you see, so didn't often go down as well as we'd hoped. The old gaffer there, uh, old Tom, who ran the place for years, was getting on a bit, and unfortunately for, for Tom, and, and as would later appear others, uh, he booked uh, the Black Country 3 as a kind of start-up, you know, warm-up act for us, like. And, uh, well, the, the Black Country 3 were a, were a kind of experimental jazz combo, and, uh, you know, very avant-garde. And, uh, of course, they were completely out of it on LSD all of the time. Uh, I mean, they had some great musicians, you know. There was uh, Sweet Melon Balls Hooper. Uh, you know, he was a, the kind of band leader, if you like, multi-instrumentalist, I believe. Not really, but, you know, 30 Hells Angels want to be seen on a Thursday night after a few few ales, you know. So anyway, they came on and did their thing. I mean, I can't even remember the name of the drummer. I mean, they changed so frequently. Gibson's there on the side, absolutely mesmerised. And, you know, they left a couple of jazz great records in the changing room, you know, for some reason. I don't know why, but uh, so he took these on. And that's where we started to really get the jazz the jazz vibe through us, and I think Chris and the, and Brian especially really took it on board. I enjoyed playing a little bit of different style on the old skins, as it were. But really, it, it, the jazz funk came a little bit later on. I think it was about 1971. We were on a tour. We were just going around to the UK as per usual. We were in a club in Liverpool. Uh, I don't I don't remember the name. It's been a fair old journey since then. Um, we were in the changing rooms at the time, waiting to go on stage. And when I say it was the changing rooms, well, it, it was the gents' loo, really. It wasn't the, the most salubrious of clubs. And in walks this gentleman called Paul McCarthy, a very nice man. He was a, it was a plumber from Bootrell. Um, yeah, and he was, he, he, he was a top trap. He'd come to fix the drains after something ungodly had been left behind by one of the other bands playing that night. It was all dreadful. Indeed. And he had this little cassette under his arm, and he was just playing some very nice little... That's a little bop hit, so we asked him what it was. 
And it turned out to be Pieces of a Man by Gil Scott Heron. It was a it was a big hit in nineteen seventy one. And this was um it was really eye-opening for us as a band. And really, the, the problem we had with it was that the, we all kept humming uh, the tune to a sign of the ages off the album all the way through our own set, <clears throat> which caused us no end of bother through all of our timing. It was an awful gig in the end, and I think the mayor in one or two fisticuffs in the crowd and demands for refunds. But we thought at the end of that, you know what? <clears throat> That's the avenue we need to explore now. And we, 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 we spoke to Peter... And he said, well, you do what you want, boys. You always have done. So uh, we went back into the studio and, and started work on the album. It was a shame what happened, like, to the Black Country 3. I mean, you know, their, their Bedford van, you know, came a cropper on Spaghetti Junction right off the top, crashed, killed all of them. Uh, terrible loss, really. But uh, Apparently, you know, the, the 30 bikers who had been chasing them had nothing to do with it. And according to the police reports, uh, they'd slipped on, on black ice, uh, which I always found funny, really, because it was July and a heat storm. Now, as a four-piece band consisting of a drummer, a rhythm guitarist and harpsichord player, a bassist and bassoonist and a lead guitarist, jazz funk was always going to be tricky. This saw the band make a change to the lineup, adding troubled saxophonist Rich T. This gave them a new sound in the band and created a new musical dynamic in the group. It would lead to the creation of Lucidic Injectors, an album still regarded as one of the most defining albums in the jazz funk genre. Making the Lucidity Injectors album was, was a very strange process. Um, can't really remember much of it um, at that point. Um, really, it was the 70s. Um, we, were, we were into rock and roll and there was, well, there was quite a bit of, quite a bit of stuff that the constabulary wouldn't have been too keen on kicking about well we thought there was um we thought there was um we only found out years later like years and years later that um it was what we were smoking basically it wasn't it wasn't the iron marijuana that we was told it was it turns out it was clippings from Pete Soup's rhododendron bush We've mixed with sage and onion stuffings from a popular brand. And you're going to get some more packs, oh my lad. So recording terminal lucidity injectors was a was a strange time, really. I mean, by now we were completely addicted to Paxo, and uh, none of us could really get through the day without a without a bagful. And uh, it it started to to show really, um, but I think we'd all try to got to get a bit cleaner apart from brian of course he was never gonna you know we knew he was never gonna give it up like i mean i remember the crow coming round one time in 
what would my probably about 73 i think something like that and those boys could party you know they, they could rock all over the world there was there wasn't old men then you know they was they were pretty hardcore but they couldn't keep up oh, now i remember mick parfit threw a white in the car park and francis rossi disappeared for a week but um you know, so but we knew that we had to do something. You know, there were lots of great bands coming out at that time, lots of great albums. And uh, you know, 1972. You know, if you look back at all the great albums that came out in that year, your know, Terminal Lucidity Injectors is one of them. And I'm very proud of it. I mean, some great bass lines in there. Um, but you know, also we experimented. You know, I did a little bit of bit, bit, things got a little bit more funky, I suppose, a little bit more dancing. You know, a little bit less metal if you want um and you know we we explored some sort of new musical horizons we weren't doing anything at a very fast pace really um we just couldn't do it we were just too spaced out um i think things got a bit out of hand you know when we decided we wanted to set fire to like three harpsichords and a recorder uh, in the car park and recorded that which you can hear you know, on on temporal loving, uh, and uh, you know that's a, that's a unique sound. You know, you never repeat that. I think people have tried to sample it and you know not been able to. Uh, probably because you can hear the you know the sirens. If you're listening very carefully, you can hear the sirens in the background, which is kind of what we wanted. Because I mean, that that might be why it took so long and and cost so much. Because you know there were there were days when we would just sit there and, and we'd talk about things. Uh, and we talk about all, all all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, it was a we were doing all sorts of crazy stuff in the studio, you know, trying to make this one album that would be very different. And uh, yeah, I got some good good. I wrote a bit of that, you know, temporal loving was was one of mine. You know, that's all got recording credits on, and you know, that's used. I think that was used in a in a Volvo advert actually. So you know, I get the royalties from that. So that's great. Uh, all I bloody well did get from the band, I can tell you. But um album you know and, and a lot of people were influenced by it and you know people have name checked us ever since i mean foo fighters 2018 tour you know they played you know the first half of the album you know live i think it was in uh, in stockholm i think somewhere like that so you know even today it's got some resonance lucidic injectors was a commercial hit upon release and garnered the band their best critical reception with NME reviewer for Sam Etherington describing it as melodious offerings from a band loved by its fans. He would later reveal that he had, what he had originally written was more odious offerings from a band loved by their fans and no one else. The copywriter had misread it after they spilt tea over the original. Any suggestions that the review was tampered with, as suggested at the time by Sam, are strongly denied by Peter Sloop's estate. Lucidic Injectors would mark the high point of the band. It turned them from English and European favourites to global stars. It charted in the top 10 albums in over 74 countries around the world and it only missed out on the top spot for most successful album of the year in the United States to Neil Young's Harvest by a mere 2 million copies. It remains to this day their most successful album in terms of sales and streaming. The accompanying tour would see the band travel the world for the first time. 
the tour lasted for years and took them to places long read about in books by the band. Those places were desperate to see them play, and it was during this tour that the band would go to Asia and have an experience that would change the way the band made music and tour forever. This is, of course, Tuvian throat singing legend Uran Udon, who Chris had an encounter with that would change the way he recorded albums and performed to the last days in his band. Now, unfortunately, Udon isn't able to talk to us, but we do have the recordings he made for a BBC interview back in 1982, explaining about his encounters with Chris and his encounters with the band as a whole. But first... Let's hear from the band and what Mongolia meant to them and what their experience was. Oh, Mongolia. Well, it's the truth. What place that is? Or isn't? There's nothing there. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's bleeding empty. For, for a city boy like me from the south, I'm not used to seeing that much space and see for miles. There's not a bus station, or there's not a tower block, there's nothing. Can't see nothing for for days. You go for days and you still can't see anything. It was it was mashing my head. It was that rhododendron. It rhododendron mixed with space. For me, City Boy, it's not a good mix. I was a bit uncomfortable, to be honest. It really was. I needed to hear some beeping horns and some taxis and some, oh, I love Fancy Father Atmans and Pears. I used to... So I, I talked to watching Mary Poppins on 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 VHS in the in the tour bus just for a little bit of a, a reminder and an ear of hearing of some friendly voices. It was it was, it was weird. Mongolia for us was was a much needed break. Basically, we've been on tour pretty much since '68. We'd put out the odd you know the odd album in between. And we'd always been a, a, a touring band, really, and we were just all feeling a bit tired, a bit worn. And uh, we heard this incredible record by Udan Udon. Uh, it was his throat singing. We were all mesmerised by this. And someone that was part of our, our, our management in Japan knew someone that could put us in touch. So once we'd finished our final gig in Japan, the management made the calls, put us in touch, and, and over we went on the first plane we could get onto. Um, and Chris was absolutely mesmerised by this throat singing. Um, and we arrived in this beautiful country. I mean, Mongolia is like nothing else on earth, really. Purely true. Udon was so welcoming. It, was, it really was a break that we needed. Um, you know, we needed the time off those six months just to get our, get our batteries back in. You know, Chris fell in love with the throat singing. Brian um, got very heavily involved in the uh, learning of the Morin Kerr, which I think... He pretty much played on every album he recorded with us until he left the band all those years later. But, yeah, I mean, Mongolia was absolutely spectacular, and and uh, I, I love the country. I still holiday there, and me and Udon, of course, have that Mongolia. relationship. No, it, it wasn't for me, like, you know. It was a bit crazy, to be honest with you. I mean, I didn't, didn't much like the food, if I'm completely truthful. I mean, you know, it wasn't great. I was used to, you know, pie and chips. That was about as exotic as I got. This was a whole different ball game, let me tell you. But, uh, you know, I mean, the scenery was nice and that. And, but, uh, you know, 
Gibbo was kind of really off on one at that point. He just, you know, he, I think he felt he was on some sort of journey and that by, you know, taking us along with him, which somehow it would solve all the problems in the band at the time. But it didn't really. He was just papering over the cracks and doing a sort of classic Gibbo thing, really, of, you know, not really facing up to the problem at hand. But, you know, you know, Peter, the manager, was like, you know, we should do it. It's great publicity. There's lots of stuff in the press. But, you know, I basically turned up, got my photo taken outside a hut and then got on the first plane back home to, you know, Birmingham, sat around in the pub for a couple of months, you know, eking out a living, playing old uh, ben, ben Crosby numbers, you know, like back in the day. And then when I got the call from Peter saying that Gibbo had had enough now and he'd feel like he'd been on his spiritual journey or whatever old nonsense he was talking about uh, you know I got back in the studio to, to, to record the next thing but uh, yeah it, I was never really part of that scene you know like the rest of them I just felt a little bit of a, bit, a bit weird really I mean you know there's me brought up in Borsal Heath which is a rough area of Birmingham to be sort of faced with that it was just very strange so no not for me I'm afraid I'd rather have my oddities in Benidorm now, let's hear those recordings from Uran Udon. I'd never heard of all of this before I met the boys. They'd been on tour with a mutual friend of ours who had played them one of my records and they'd fallen in love with it. Our friend asked if they could come and visit me and I said, well, why not? Let's give it a go and let's meet them. And yeah, from that point onwards, um, I've always had a, a strong relationship with them. As Udon would go on to explain, that short cup of tea and a visit turned into a much longer stay, one that would, as we said earlier, irrevocably change the way the band worked. We'll let Udon continue the story. They'd been with me for a few weeks and yeah, it was a lot of fun, you know, we, we, we had a great time, partied a little bit, I got to show them um, Mongolia, which I really enjoyed and they seemed to be um, sort of taking it all in, like, relaxing and you could see their shoulders visibly drop as the time went on. But as the time went on, there didn't seem to be a desire from any of them to return home. And, you know, a couple of weeks, and it turned into a couple of months. And, I mean, by the end of their stay, they'd been with me for six months, which was a lot, if I'm honest with you. But there came a point where I decided I'm going to try and get rid of them. I come up with some crazy things inspire them to go home. Chris was constantly asking me for hints and tips about how to improve his own singing, which is pretty good for for what he was doing. And that was to say to him, the reason that my, I'm able to do what I do vocally uh, is by inhaling salt air from salt water. And that Something he really took to heart and, you know, went on for a couple of weeks and sort of like pretended to teach him and train him in the ways of doing it. And, uh, you know, saying that he seemed to be, um, seemed to really help him as well, which was good. But it's complete nonsense. What Udon had told Chris was that to get the best out of his voice, he would need to perform within a five mile radius of a naturally appearing body of seawater. Now, there are a couple of things that perhaps at this point the band should have picked up on, 
Udon will explain more. One of the key things I thought might be a clue that this was nonsense to the band was that Mongolia is landlocked. We don't have a sea. So where was I going to have been performing in a radius of five miles of salt water? Utter madness. But they didn't seem to have noticed that. They clearly hadn't been looking at the map at any point. So it just continued. And, you know, I do feel a bit bad about it now. But they've been with me for six months, so what was I to do? I loved the boys now. At that time, they just did my head in. Um, I buy all of the albums and I support them everywhere I can. And I'm glad to have played some part in creating the band that is now ruling the airwaves. Or so Alan tells me. As Udon said, he told the band they would have to perform within a five mile radius of naturally occurring salt water. Now, when you're travelling around the UK, that's not too much of an issue. But it does present its own challenges when you're trying to record an album. Now we're going to take you back to an interview that Terry Jenks, one of the sound engineers, on uh, some of the later albums did, um, for ITN's popular kids TV show, How To, starring, of course, Fred Dynage. Well, now, darling, you see, the problem we had was that when the band came back from Mongolia, Chris had this incredible idea about having the seawater air pumped into the bloody studio all the time, and it caused us no end of bother. In the end, Peter suggested that either myself or, or uh, Roger O'Leary would pop into the back of his 59 Atlas van, drive all the way to the bloody coast with two steers in the back, fill them up and then drive all the way back and let me tell you it was not always a pleasurable experience. Once we'd arrived at the back of the studio, what we had to do was plug the damn things in, leave the top off so they'd steam slightly and get two fans behind them and blow it into the recording booth for Chris to sing his stupid bloody songs. I mean, the corrosion on our equipment was outrageously expensive. Brian Madden would also explain what effect this had on the band when they were touring and also on their equipment when they were touring. And he was explaining all this stuff about salty air on human voice and, and all this kind of stuff. And Chris gets convinced of this. And then all of a sudden he's like, right, we need to rearrange the rest of the tour. So we need to be near salt water. And we're like, but Chris, we've got, this, we've got like a year's worth of gigs lined up, mate. We can't just just move them. We're not, we're not playing like, like Billy Joel's here, mate. We, we, we've got, we need to do big gigs. And it's like, well, we'll, we'll move all the rig and we'll set them up on beaches. Set them, on, up, set them up on beaches. We were, like, Chris, we're doing a gig. It's not D-Day. You know, we, we, we've got the rest of the tour to do. You know, I'm, I'm not playing on Vladivostok Arbor. Too bloody cold, and not to mention, not. I, I said to him then, I said, "Look, mate, if you want salt water on all this stuff, it's gonna wreck everything. Your voice box might be alright if your voice box agrees with it, yeah. But my guitars don't like it, my amps don't like it, and my pedals don't like it, and and they don't get a say, and they're expensive. And you know, all you've got to do is have a gargle of some salty water or whatever and you feel alright, I've got to buy a new bloody guitar because it's rusted because you've made me play the damn thing practically underwater so but he wasn't having it was he 
he wasn't having any of it and we had to rearrange everything and you know there was some of the some of the later gigs on that lucidity injectors tour that we literally had to rock up on a beach and we had to, you know we set it up and there was nowhere for anybody who'd bought seated tickets to sit and we had one i can't remember where it was where was that now I think it was somewhere in the Baltic somewhere. Bleeding merch stall sank because the tide came in. Like, you know, we had we had we had our, our merch fella, merch fellas there, like like you know, been practically swept out to sea while he's selling t-shirts and hats. You know, that's no good, is it? You wouldn't see that at an Aerosmith gig, would you? You know, that was, that was not, you know, that was 1974, not going into 75. Aerosmith were getting big then. And you wouldn't see them rocking up at, on a beach with their merch stand being swept away with the tide. It did, I, I don't know if it was the saltwater there. Or it was something did something to, to Chris's mind at that time. And it wasn't the saltwater and it wasn't the rhododendron. I don't know what it was. But something started to something started to snap. I think. With their new, only near the coast mandate, the band returned to the UK to continue their tour, hoping to capture the magic of the live performances that they'd experienced over the last two years. They decided to record one of their concerts. The gig they chose was the now infamous "Live at Cleethorpes" album. We just need to break character for a moment here. The following section may contain elements that some people may find upsetting. Please bear in mind this is only a work of fiction and fun. So if you're upset by it, I do apologise. Back to the show. Clench em Tight, the first single on the Live at Cleethorpe 75 album. And what an album it is. It is widely regarded as one of the best live albums ever recorded on the British Isles to this day. Now, we completely agree with that. It is an absolute monster with hit after hit. The band are in fine form. The crowd are absolutely loving it. But... It's an album tinged with a, an element of sadness to it because it's the last time anyone would ever hear Rich T play live. Now, unfortunately, at the end of this show, Rich T... Well, we'll let the band explain more. The tour was great, you know, albeit somewhat limited in focus, being as we couldn't be too far from the sea, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, set out crowds every night. We played some big arenas, uh, you know, wall-to-wall, pie and chips. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. Yeah, so it's the final gig. It's the final, final gig of uh, of, of the tour in February 1975. Um, we were all naked. We'd been touring constantly. We hadn't been home for years. You know, we'd been in Mongolia and then, you know, basically since 72. We hadn't stopped 
at all. Like we hadn't. People think, oh, it's rock and roll. It's not hard work. They don't know what they're talking about. You've never done eighteen hours in a van, and then giving everything you've got to to a to an audience, and then you know dri- you're driving thousands of miles. You could have a gig in Scarborough one day, and you could be an exit of the next. That is not a small tip. We were pretty much out of it all the time. Uh, myself and Rich liked to imbibe, you know, on some of the more exotic substances, shall we say. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think somebody spiked Rich's, you know, rhododendron and Paxo mix uh, previous. I went on tour, me and Rich would sometimes share rooms and, you know, save on costs, especially back in 75. What he told me once was that while we were doing a gig in Brighton, they had a bad reaction to some pharmaceuticals. And you, you never knew with Rich what he was up to. Could have been anything. And uh, on that particular evening, he found his way to Brighton Sealife Centre and broken in and spent the night there. And he didn't have CCTV back then. And Rich, because of his reaction, didn't have any memory of what he got up to. But he, he always kept telling me about this creature called Zephyria the Spocktopus. And as Rich described it to me, it was a, a, a giant octopus that was wearing an, an Apollo astronaut's helmet. And it wasn't filled with water, it was just a normal helmet, empty, apart from the giant octopus living inside. Rich was, Rich was on it. He, he, he was like, you know, just... The, you know, there's those stories of Ozzy wouldn't go on stage without a thousand brown M&Ms in a brandy glass. Well, Rich wouldn't go on stage until he'd done about three ounces of this stuff. And, and he, he went through some more and more talking about this this, this space octopus was talking to him, this Zephyria character. And he was convinced, you know, that this uh, the, the Zephyria the, the Spocktopus, as he called it, uh, had been kind of singing to him. He would night. often confide in me about this thing, talking to him throughout the day on our journeys and at gigs and things like that. And I do remember on one occasion he telling me that he'd gone into a local Midland bank to get some cash out. And then uh, behind one of the counters, Zafira had been there offering him mortgage advice. It was very bizarre. Very bizarre indeed, really. If anything, it's one of the one of the main reasons that I, I never really got involved in that scene. I mean, I, I, I'd still smoke about seventy a day and, and drink whiskey like it's nobody's business. But I, I kind of got out of the drug game after Zephyria started to appear for Rich. In the changing rooms, we used to have a little bit of a you know a little bit of a smoke, and uh, you know I, I remember quite distinctly in having a conversation with this space octopus. Uh, and I've got to be honest with you, I thought I saw it myself. Zephyria is described as a benevolent force for Rich's life as opposed to a malevolent force. In fact, I do believe that the mortgage rates he was offering were very reasonable. This led to the band not being overly concerned about the whole situation, which in hindsight I'm sure they will agree they should have been. But let's move ahead slightly back to the night of Cleethorpe's and the events that took place. I mean, the gig was an absolute triumph. We were on top form as a band, and uh, the, the crowd were also loving every minute of it. I mean, if I close my eyes, I, I can still picture them all 
jumping and jiving as we were playing, and, and I can still smell it and feel it. It was an absolute amazing gig. You know, we, we were, the Cleethorpes was always a great crowd, you know, on the pier there, and uh, they were very big fans of the of the Fist. And, uh, you know, so we got there, it was a great show, fantastic. Rich was, you know, giving it all, you know, on the saxophone. He, he, he was like a man possessed. Now we get to the second to last song of the night, which I think was Book of Thagnar. And as I finish my drum solo, Rich walks up to the podium to me and says, After this show, me and Zephyria are going home. And I didn't think anything of it, because, you know, it was the last gig for us. Made perfect sense. And then he cracks back on with the gig. I mean, he was incredible. Uh, and But he looked like, you know, harrowed. You know, he, he looked really ill. I don't think he'd been sleeping. And apparently, you know, a couple of nights, the part of the road crew had found him wandering the beach naked, you know, with, with nothing but some celery. So At the end of the gig, we just finished our final final encore of How Much Fist. And, and he just drops his saxophone and just leaps off the crowd, surfs across the crowd. And, and I think if you, if you listen to the final song on the album that we released, I think you can still hear Chris say under his breath. What the bloody hell's he up to? You know, or words to that effect. And they all think it's part of the show, part of his big finale. It's like carrying him around on their shoulders, crowd surfing him as they do. And then <clears throat> once he's back on terra firma with his feet on the floor... He just he just legged it. A couple of the you know, road crew followed him, like, figuring he was just going to go and strip off again and rub himself with celery. He wasn't going to be stopped. It was a, you know, a man on a mission crowd are still clapping and cheering and going mental they don't really see what's going on it's only us on stage and 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 the, and the lighting guys and some of the sound guys turn around and go where's rich going what's he doing um but no apparently you know this is february howling gale outside rang to the end of the pier the lads tried to stop him next thing you know he's tearing his clothes off over the end psh, into the north sea the water's barely above three degrees. I mean, it's freezing cold, freezing, freezing cold. And, and that's the North Sea. It's not warm. It's not swimming. I don't care. I, I don't care how healthy you think he's getting in cold water. It wasn't very healthy for rich tea, I tell you that. And then suddenly we hear these screams coming from out the back door. I mean, it was, you know, blood curdling. You know, it made my skin stand up. And then uh, one of the security guys wades his way through the crowd and then says to Chris and uh, pulls Peter onto the stage as well and tells him that Rich has just leapt over the railings of the pier into the water. Yeah, I've still got... I'm, I'm still sustaining the feedback on my guitar here. There's, the echoes of the saxophone in the floor are still going around the PA. At that point, that basically all hell broke loose in the auditorium. But Peter gets one of the roadie lads to leg it up the pier to the RNLR station on the seafront around the corner, and they dispatch a boat out to look for him. You know, we have to stop some of our crew diving in, and uh, in, in the end, try and help us search once we've cleared everybody out of the way. We managed to get some of our lighting rig moved outside, you know, some of the big high spots and stuff like that, to try and help with the air, being able to spot him in the water. But, uh, I mean, this goes on for maybe 12, 12 hours or so. You know, we thought he'd, we thought he'd get picked up maybe by by a fishing boat either still swimming or 
trolled up off the bottom, you know, coming out of Grimsby or Arrow somewhere. And then after a while, they kind of decided that, you know, there's there's no way he's still alive. And, you know, we, we never found his body. And, uh, it, you know, hopefully he's still out there somewhere having a, a jolly old time, having somehow mysteriously survived. But, you know, he was a great lad and he was well on his way to becoming one of the greatest of all time. And, you know, I loved our times together. He was an absolute legend and I, I, I miss him every day. Uh, yeah, I, I can still hear him, you know, talking about, you know, Zephyria the Spocktopus. Um, but yeah, I never quite understood what the fixation with the salary was. But there are some things I find in life that, you know, men just don't need to know. And, and that was one of them. I mean, it was a sad time, actually, for the band. But, but yeah, I, I still miss him. He was such a talent and and a good friend, and he, and and he, he's missed. He still is missed. Yeah. Following Cleethorpe's, the band would pull back from the limelight while they mourned the passing of their friend. It would be three years before they released another album, Beneficium. This album still features some of the recordings Rich T had made during his time in the band. And while touring the album, the band decided against replacing Rich with another saxophonist and used his original recordings through the PA to keep it as authentic as possible. Beneficium would mark the end of the jazz-funk era of the band. It would be followed up a couple of years later by the ever-changing Axiom, a title of an album still tied to the loss of Rich those five years earlier. Ever-changing Axiom marked a return of the original four-piece lineup. Along with it came a return to their heavy metal roots. The relationships in the band had started to become slightly frayed as their own private relationships grew more and more dominant. Alan, the perennial bachelor, still enjoyed the single life. Chris was too lost in his music to focus on anything else. Whereas Clive and Brian had both engaged in long-term relationships. One of these, in 1984, caused the band's original lineup to be shattered. Now we get to where my part of the story kind of ends, as far as Sherlock Powerfist is concerned. Um, I, I, was, I was going out with a journalist, Tabitha Granger, uh, at the time, Nice, nice girl. So I thought. I thought she was all right. I thought I was in love, and I guess that's what they say. That if you think you are, you're probably not. But anyway, we we had this massive, massive row um, over travel arrangements for her because she wasn't welcome. She 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 didn't get on that well with sometimes with Chris, Alan, or Clive. People look back now and they go, oh, you know, Tabitha, this, Tabitha, that. I don't really think it was the poor lass's fault, to be honest with you. Yes, she might have been a bit high-strung. Yes, she liked things her own way. But we all did, really, back then. And, you know, I, I, I just think that, you know, she got a bit of a bad rap. And I think that she became like this figure of hatred. And, and yeah, you know... Uh, Heat at the moment. Um, this was this was back in '84, I think. Tail end of '84, October, I think it was, something like that. Um, 
now um, Metallica just released Ride the Lightning I was listening to that quite a lot um, but yeah I, that day said that she wasn't welcome basically that she wasn't a, she wasn't doing anything for the for the show she wasn't contributing not, you know she wasn't like a roadie or a techie or a sound guy lighting guy manager catering she wasn't any of that she was just a, an hanger on yes well you see I was glad to see the back of her frankly she was nothing but a pain in my backside from the moment she met Brian uh, wanting this wanting that wanting him to get paid the liberty of the woman I couldn't believe it and then, of course, she starts talking about getting paid. And, all the and you know, them boys, they, they knew they could have an hanger on in every different city, you know. They could have a couple of hangers on in every different city, not necessarily at different times either. Um, but I was trying, I thought, yeah, I might, I might, might settle down a bit here. And I like this Tabitha and I'd like her to come with me so that she can see, you know, see what all these things are like when they're on the road. She was a journalist. She, you know, she said she was going to document it and, and, you know, report on it and, and make out that rock and roll isn't all, you know, it's not all nasty. It's, there's, there's some, there's some wholesome bits to it and the, the camaraderie and the, and the brotherhood of it, you know, and the solidarity. But, but they just didn't want to know. For me, the, the problem was that stories from the band started getting into the media. And I know the bands at the time were getting a lot more media attention. But there were things that were being said that, well, could only have come from inside the band. One in particular was an occasion where, I think it was on The Sun or, 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 or similar, where it had, you know, a drama in Lobster Orgy. And... The thing with that story was it implicated me in, in being involved in a, an, an act with some lovely ladies from Vietnam and some crustaceans. The thing that was missed out of that story was that Brian was with me at the time. I didn't want to know and I didn't want to be um, without her because, you know, the, the tour was called Changes Forever. And I was like, yeah, and, and, and I thought I'd made a change. Um, so I said, look, it's, it's, either, it's either her or me. You know, for everybody else to blame, you know, classic, you know, power fist line up, broken up by, you know, rich, roadine educated, you know, footlights at Cambridge kind of character who, who came in and broke the band up. That's not how it happens, to be honest with you. I think it's easy, you know, she's an easy scapegoat in that regard, but she she really wasn't the villain of the piece. I mean, the band was already kind of going that way, you know. Next thing I know, I've got Christopher knocking on my door, demanding to know where the royalties are for the last five tours and six albums. I mean, come on now, be reasonable. A man has to keep his country estate going. It doesn't just pay for itself. I'm the manager, I'm the one who's managed to get these contracts signed, and that's how it, how it transpired, but she would not have it. So, yes, there was, I did mention to Brian that she was a bit of a pain, and then I mentioned it to, well, the rest of the band, and, uh, yes, I may have said the odd thing that may not have been entirely true, it's sure, but, but I felt I was doing it for the benefit of the band. What's that you say? Uh, no, I would categorically deny me continue to extort money from these poor gullible fools. That that was not 
part of the equation at all. I want to make that absolutely clear. Absolute lies. If I hear anybody saying it, I'm going to sue them. Do you hear me? I will bally well sue you. And, you know, I don't, I'll basically, I don't come and she don't come. And they said, fine, don't come. And, and you know, just to put salt into, into a really, really painful wound, she went and left me. You know, there was that horrible, horrible last paparazzi incident where I was chucking some guitars into, into a tip. Down into it and no, poor old Brian, you know, going through a bit of a difficult time of it. You know, decides to lose his uh, his guitars, his collection of guitars on the tip, and there's her flipping paparazzi mates going jig jig jig, and that's how she got a promotion, I think. But uh, yeah. I'd been to see been to see me nan, um, she was the oldest woman in Britain at the time, it's bloody ancient. Miserable out care, buggers followed me, and I went to the tip, and I was chucking chucking these guitars in and I was having a look at them you know opened the case up and kept the case in useful cases never had too many cases um I was chucking looking at them before I chucked them in and I heard this snap 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 and saw this flash 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 I turned around and there's bleeding paparazzi there I don't know what you're doing I'm at the tip you've not got nothing better to do and then this gets blown all out of proportion about me being you know abandoning everything about my former life and, and, and all this kind of stuff and and that was that and, and next thing I hear Tabitha's deputy editor of the mail on Sunday she tells me everything I should have known about her and should have said yeah changes forever Tabitha get knotted sling your hook and um, I should have gone on tour with the lads but yeah hindsight is um, you never need your specs on for that do you that's that's the that's the world that we live in in music. You know, it's cutthroat. You're only really as good as your last scandal. And uh, you know, Brian was good for a scandal while he was going. To be fair, and uh, you know, we were kind of going in different directions anyway. So, you know, it was a shame for Brian. He was the person who got caught up in this. Really, you know, he couldn't kind of see further than the end of his uh, uh, foot. So yeah, it was a shame because he was a good mate. Like you know, we had some great times together. Well, I really felt like, you know, with Rich going and then Brian, I mean, I know there was a long time in between, but there was something not right. I've had a bit of a hiatus and came back stronger than ever eventually, but uh, not for Brian, unfortunately. Best of luck to him. I still send him a Christmas card now and then. Uh, but, yeah, it's a shame, like it was. We were a good band and, you know, these things happen. Misunderstanding, but uh, V. With the band now only compromising of Chris, Clive and Alan, difficult decisions had to be made. Will the band continue, or will they all call it a day? The day was saved when Peter, the band's manager, suggested that the band hire Quentin Beverly. Hello, um, I'm Quentin Beverly, and uh, I joined the band in the mid-80s after the departure of the great Brian Madden, of course, for whom I always did and always will hold the greatest respect as a fellow guitar player. Um, I had done some work with the band previously, uh, covering from an earlier, um, shall we say, uh, illness of uh, Brian's uh, on the Space Fisting tour. So 
um, I was familiar with the band's work and familiar with the band as a whole, so it was Peter Sloop, the band's manager, who suggested that they contact me to see if I would like to replace Brian on a full-time basis. So after a few practice sessions and a few small quiet warm-up gigs under a, a false name, Chris asked me if, if, if I would join the band and uh, play guitar in Brian's place. Uh, now I'll, I'll, I'll join and I've enjoyed every moment of it ever since, yes. You may have noticed a certain similarity between the voices. That is because Peter, the ever-wily entrepreneur, decided that he would hire from within his family. Quentin was, in fact, his third cousin, and as such, was more amenable to some of Peter's business suggestions. With their new lineup of Chris, Alan, Clive and Quentin, the band embarked on recording new material. With the musical world around them changing, bands like the Big Four of Thrash Metal, Metallica, Anthrax and all the rest were more prominent and with their Birmingham metal lineage still ingrained in the band's DNA, they take the plunge into thrash with the album Terror Squad. Terrorize your auntie, terrorize your grandma, terrorize everybody you have ever met, we are the Terror Squad. And if you're not careful, the first thing that we'll do is gonna find you and then we'll terrorize you too, we are the Terror Squad. possibly one of the band's most divisive albums, both critically and fan-wise. They had picked up fans via the jazz funk era, and they stuck through them with Beneficium and Everchanging Axiom. Those fans now turned against them, seeing the band as going too far. But the fans who had been fans from the start flocked back, excited by the new musical styling, and even critics were slightly more open-minded. Kerrang's review of Terror Squad described it as an album released this year that fits our genre, possibly not for everybody, but better than hot tea splashed on your gonads. Which may have been another album that year. We haven't double-checked that yet. They took this new sound around the world. Fires were reignited, cobwebs blown away, and once again, All Up Powerfist bestrode the world as musical rock gods, garnering massive crowds wherever they played. But, as they looked forward to the future, the ghosts of their pasts were looming in the background. In 1988, one of those ghosts was about to go boo. To help us tell you this part of the story, we had to go transatlantic. So we reached out to American journalist Neil Liddell, to fill us in on the events. So yeah, I used to do some uh, freelance reporting for like, say, you might have heard of them, Rolling Stone magazine, or Melody Maker, Billboard, I'm sure you've heard of a few of those. No doubt remember from earlier on. Rich T, the band's saxophonist, at the end of the Live at Cleethorpe's album, had leapt from the end of the pier and never been found. Well... We'll let them pick up the story from here. But fast forward to like June 1988, you know, a guy who claimed to be Rich T somehow ended up on the Oprah Winfrey show and said he had accidentally followed a passing group of octopus 
migrating from waters around Cleethorpes to California. That's a hell of a trip. But I'm not a marine biologist. It's crazy. And I uh, guess when he got there, he got struck accidentally by a paddle from a paddle border because, you know, California, that's all they do out there on the coast. And I uh, guess he got amnesia. You know, I knew Rich very well, and this was not Rich. Um, poor, poor fellow, I think he was a little bit deluded, to be honest with you. I mean, big fan of the band, so, you know, he wasn't all bad, I suppose. But, uh, you know, you can take these things too. I'd, I'd been Rich's roommate on tour, so, you know, I knew him better than anybody else. Well, the problem was that a lot of the stuff this chat was spouting was readily accessible information. There'd been a lot of tell-all books from some of the people that we'd met on the journey, and a lot of the information that he, he was telling everybody had clearly come from a couple of these. But, you know, he had a charisma about him, and people seemed to believe him. No matter how many times we denied ever having met this chap. And he began pursuing a legal case for royalties for uh, for a lot of the songs and such. Because, you know, hey, I may have been flown into water for over a decade almost, but, you know, man's got to make money. So the case goes to trial in California. Yeah. It was like we were advised by legal people that he really might have a claim. And it's like, look, you know... I, I know it was a few years ago, and I know I was, uh, you know, on some of, uh, you know, God's greatest herbs, but, uh, yeah, frankly, uh, you know, even I could tell it wasn't him simply because, you know, Rich T, he was a, you know, he was a tall fella. Uh, he'd often, you know, have to duck to get where he was going, and, and this this chap was, uh, well, he was about five foot one, I think. And when we tried to, you know, we, 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 we met him privately a couple of occasions. And there's one thing that Rich would never do, and that was shake your hand, because he didn't want to damage his fingers. First thing this chap does, puts his hand out to shake our hands. And that really made me pretty serious that this was not the fellow that he was claiming to be. But we had to go through this whole legal drama. I'm surprised it got as far as it did, but, you know, no, nobody says that, you know, publicity is bad, whether good or bad, so... All this money this chap was trying to claim was money that we'd paid to Rich's family. It wasn't that we'd kept the money in the meantime. It'd all been paid to his family. And they got to be dragged out to bloody California as well. Okay. It's wild, but it, it ended up after three weeks when his octogenarian mother stormed the courtroom. It was an amazing time. It, dead silence throughout the courtroom. And she comes running up, shouting about getting back to the house. You know, you get, you get back here and finish chores and stop hanging out with these weirdo friends. And she's wheeling this copy of his birth certificate. Apparently, the man was uh, Stephen Mote from Carmel by the Sea in California. I, nobody was expecting that. It was absolute chaos in the courtroom. This bloomer with the curlers in her hair and a nighty on, you know, one stick starts bellowing at this poor fella and you can see he instantly turns bright red. You know, we didn't know what was going on there. Camera flashes, bulbs popping all over the place. You know, and she just, just went for him. You know, she was furious. 
I sure wasn't. But at that time, I'd kind of sobered up a little bit. So things didn't quite bother me as much back then. But yeah, it was some wild times. I think we actually saw quite a spike in album sales. So nice one, fella. With the moat court case behind them, the band could return to what they do best, making music. So they went back into the studio and started work on the Corpus Mimir album. Now, this album was released in 1991, a year often described by critics as the last year that good music ever happened. It's a controversial point of view, but one held by a great number of people. The reason it might be the last year that good music was ever made is because Corpus Mimir is one of the worst albums ever made at this it's largely uninspired generally regarded as being formulaic and by the numbers and Alan Blackstock was really struggling to be a thrash drummer after a 30 year career it was taking its toll I've been drumming with the band for 30 years almost at this point and it was really becoming a long old strain and now we're doing thrash metal it was a young man's game, and I did my best, but I needed prolonged breaks on tours, really, to, to keep myself going, because otherwise, after a while, my arms would seize up and my ankle would go, and I wouldn't be able to do it anymore. Due to Alan's failing health and being able to keep up with the thrash requirements, the band would take longer on this tour than ever before. In fact, this tour would go on to last for five years. And they would take little breaks every so often between every set of shows. And while on the road in South America in 1996, the long arm of the law would reach out to grab them. The band decided they needed a two-week break after having toured from the bottom of South America all the way around the outside back round to Peru. They decided that two-week break for a bit of R&R before continuing the tour is what they needed, and it was in Peru that they would find themselves in hot water. So we just finished playing in Lima the night before in Peru. You know, it's halfway through our South American tour, but we needed a couple of week break, so we're going to head back to the UK at this point on a lovely, lovely jet that's been organised by Peter. And when we were waiting to board the plane, I just saw something rustle in Clive's little handbag thing, and I, I didn't pay any mind at the time, because yeah, it could have been anything, you know, something with vibrates, God knows for Clive. But we get set, settled on the plane, all ready to, to, to fly out of the country, when uh, the captain put, puts out a message saying that, you know, we're going to have to put everything on hold. Next thing we know, the stewardess is walking down the plane... Next thing I know, I'm being hustled back into the airport in Lima, surrounded by a load of armed guards, you know, all threatening me with Kalashnikovs, saying, get back in the airport, you scum. Bomb, you know, they, they seem perfectly nice, perfectly friendly. And they approach Clive, and they ask him politely if he'd, he'd leave the plane. You know, he gets a bit funny about it, as, as you would. He doesn't know what's going on as far as he's aware. There's nothing for them to... You know, whatever language is in Peru. Uh, but it was, it was pretty frightening. Well, I was pretty sure this was nothing to do with, you know, 
any uh, illegal narcotics because I'd got rid of those. Uh, and we were pretty careful after getting, you know, getting our collars felt uh, in Munich that time. So, um, anyway, they, they kind of took me back into the, you know, the customs area. Off, off, off he gets off the plane and the rest of us think, oh, well, we, we better go too, just in case. Peter's looking a little bit com- confused and also slightly annoyed because he knows he's not going to get a refund on these flights. Still with the guns on us, like I was a terrorist. And... Uh, went through my hand luggage and there, lo and behold, there was Geronimo, the, the, um, guinea pig. I get back into the, uh, the terminal and then, uh, you know, Clive is escorted away and, and we were all taken away to be interviewed and it turned out that Clive had, had snuck a guinea pig into his hand luggage. Now, God knows, I mean, this is a 14, 15 hour flight back to the UK. So, you know, I don't know what he was going to feed it. And then they kind of started putting all these pictures in front of me of all these other animals. You know, there were some marmosets in there. There was a capuchin monkey, even as a, a tapir. And, and worse yet was the uh, vicuña, small llama thing. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, well, they're all very nice. You know, nodding me head. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That's pretty, you know. Anyway, next thing I know, all of me in the back of a van. And then ends up getting banged up in some South American gulag. And they said that I was a... You know, a ringleader in the in a global kind of mammal smuggling ring, and that uh, I was responsible for you know the disappearance of their national animal from the from the local you know parks and stuff, and that I've been shipping them out under an alias uh, for you know various you know rich benefactors. Uh, it's terrible in traffic at the best of the time, let alone with animals. Part of a global animal smuggling ring. Absolutely ridiculous going on. Down the road to prison, I couldn't believe it. So it's you know all comes to all. Peter kind of comes in after a couple of hours. I'm in this flipping scary old jail, like you know, people looking at me, you know, going, "Who's this fella? He's going to get a, you know get a good good seeing to." Well, Peter starts to get involved with the whole, you know, there's a lot of argy bargy shouting and screaming. You know, Peter's mostly furious. As I said, about the getting the money back on the flights. And I was terrified, you know. I'm, I mean, I'm a, you know, I've been brought up in the mean streets of Birmingham, but let me tell you, uh, that means nothing when you're, you know, in in a jail in in Lima, serving 15 years for animal smuggling. So, um, yeah, that was a that was an eye opener, and you're surrounded by cartel enforcers and you know assassins. So, um, yeah, it was pretty scary stuff, to be completely truthful with you. Yeah, you know, went to the British consulate, nothing they can do. They said I'd confess to these crimes uh, in front of a magistrate, and, and that was it. And the band left me, and you know, we, we, they couldn't tour without us, so they're doing something for us back at home uh, to try and get us free. And truth be told, the reason I got him was because I just fancied a bit of company. I was pretty lonely. I was a little bit smashed out of it from the you know, previous concert, and so I wasn't thinking massively clear, just... Uh, there was this fella outside the airport selling guinea pigs, and I thought, oh, that'd be nice, you know, take one home. Uh, you know, he was a cheerful-looking little chap. Just put him in my hand luggage and thought, no more of it. Uh, you know, we get back to the UK, those of us that can. You know, we end up flying economy, because uh, costs and all. And, uh, you know, we get back to the UK, and we try to petition the government to put some pressure on the Peruvian government to... To, to get Clive out, I know he's having a terrible time. He's written to me some letters. Um, I've still got them in the attic, actually, and his handwriting was very, very different in them. But he, you know, he professed that he was having a jolly old time, apart from one or two incidents. And then Quentin 
comes in. He's had been having a chat with some of the Sabbath boys while they've been down the old club together. Uh, been chatting to Giza and Tony. It was actually Giza who suggested, well, why don't you cover war pigs, but maybe call it war guinea pigs. And I thought, oh, that's a jolly good idea. So uh, we thought we'd, we'd do that. And then Gibble comes up with this crazy idea where we're all going to recreate 60s and, and, and 50s war movies dressed as guinea pigs. Now, if you've ever tried to recreate the longest day dressed as a guinea pig, let me tell you, sand gets everywhere. Absolute nightmare. The Battle of Britain stuff, terrible. What, it is badly hard to get in and out of a Spitfire in a guinea pig costume with a guitar. It is very, very hard. I know I'm only five foot one. However, it was still almost impossible. You know, the single wasn't a commercial hit in the UK. I think it got to about number 47 in the charts. But Peru, because of the guinea pigs, it was a number one bestseller for about 12, 13 weeks. We couldn't believe it. After this, of course, we we had to take a bit of a break. Um, There's still several countries that Clive wasn't allowed in with his uh, with his criminal record. You know, until he's able to travel again, um, we'll we'll put everything on hold. And you know, we did a lot of little, little things, bits and pieces. I, I did a few sessions for people. I know some of the other boys did too. The charity single must have worked because Clive only ended up serving two of his 15-year prison sentence in a Peruvian prison. He is released in 1998, sent back to the UK to serve the rest of his sentence there on parole. Three years later, however, after political change in Peru, Clive would at last be a free man. And then it turned out 2001, I mean, we couldn't believe it. You know, the President Toledo, he apparently grown up being a big fan of the band. And he petitions the courts using his, his, his new president power to, uh, to to quash the convictions of Clive as a free man. And off we go again, straight back on tour, almost instantaneously. First player on the show, Peru. We've still never had a proper explanation from from Clive um, about why there was a guinea pig, and ever since then, um, he has been banned from bringing any mammalian companions on tour. Yes. The band now reunited, all a little bit older and all a little bit wiser, decided if they were going to make music, they were going to slow things down a little bit, and so they returned to the studio started work on Death Shroud, an acoustic compilation album of all of their big hits from yesteryear. It was well received, much to the surprise of everybody involved, and although many of the fans were concerned that the, the title of the album, Death Shroud, would mean a, a sign of the end of the band on the horizon, they were greatly mistaken, because shortly after they released Of Mankind, another heavy metal inspired album and The Last Voyage of the Ferryman an album dedicated to Blackstock's father who had recently passed away then in 2018 something terrible happened something that would 
finally mean the end of the band. In 2018, Chris Gibson decided to sue the band and Sony, the current holders of the band's original contracts, for all of his past earnings and also the naming rights to the band. Money. Ultimately, it all comes down to money. And that was the problem with this bloody court case that Gibson put us through. I mean, it was outrageous. So Gibbo comes in one day and says, Lads, I want to do my own thing. There's some projects I want to work on, but I want to do them under my name, not all lot powerful. Yeah, like an orchestra of, of uh, gazoos or something, and... You know, some, some recordings of sort of a guinea fowl or something. In, I don't know. It was very strange. It was like a, you know, space opera thing that he'd been kicking around since the 60s. So, and it, we just weren't really into that anymore. You know, we'd kind of done that nonsense back in the days. And we're like, that's fine, Kimball. Don't you worry. Go have a jolly old time, son. Someone from legal a couple of days later knocks on his door and says, by the way, you can't do that. We own your name. You're an entity that belongs to Sony Music Group. He goes absolutely mental. He knocks the bloke clean out right there and then his doorstep. It's all in the papers. I think you can go back and have a look. So, he decides what he's going to do. He's going to... To sue Sony Music, you know, one of the biggest biggest companies in the music industry. And Chris thinks, oh, I'm going to teach the founders a lesson. Um, he tried to sue them for historic back earnings. Um based on the fact that he's on his name. He's going to sue Sony, and he's going to sue the rest of the band for his rights to his own name. Now, the problem was, that back in 68, when we signed up with Peter and RCA, he'd basically signed over his name, because that was the name of the band. You know, there's nothing we could do. It was all perfectly legal. Back then, you see, we, we, weren't, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, we, we was either sign a contract or go back you know back to work at British Leyland or something so uh, so you know it was it was nice to, to get out of that so yeah we signed all, everything and it turns out Chris Gibson's name who in fact was was kind of part of that signage he didn't own his name anymore he'd signed it over to RCA when when he first met Peter Sloop you see and he wasn't was not aware of this and Sony weren't about to tell him before it got to court so they, they basically gave him enough rope to hang himself but we end up in the high court in London and there we are, two week trial and we've all had enough of trials from the 80s and then he starts banging on about how we've never done anything for the band, Peter had ripped him off, he said some very unsavoury things about Peter, but God rest his soul unfortunately Chris Gibbo didn't really have the best of legal advice. And, you know, Baroness Sloop is in pieces in the gallery. Oh, I mean, Gibson really let himself down. And some of the things he said about me and the boys, well, I, I can't repeat them for legal reasons. Some of them are in sealed documents that won't be opened until the next millennium. But suffice to say, I was there in 73. I was the one holding his hair. He knows what he did. Very acrimonious, very nasty, all round. And, yes, it changed him. Irre irreparably. It destroyed he, him. Yeah, you know, he lost a lot of money from all of this. And, 
you know, it's, the way the contracts were, we weren't getting a great deal of money, really. It's only sort of in the latter parts of the, our lives we've been able to do this because, you know, getting money from touring. But uh, anyway, so unfortunately, Gibbo lost the court case. The case was thrown out due to the fact that all the contracts, as Sony had said, were perfectly legal. Gibson didn't have a leg to stand on, legally speaking. As you can expect, he was a man without a name, and he didn't take this well. He would have no, no patience for anything in life anymore, even his pigeons. He gave up his pigeons, and he gave up his band, and he gave, gave up his flower arranging and, and everything. And that was that, so we were sort of a bit stuck, you know, what we're going to do next. You know, I didn't really fancy going back to, you know, working in, in the abattoir business. And I just thought, gee, I'm not doing that. No way, mate. Um, so I thought, well, best keep the band going, eh? And uh, we've been around for a long time, we, you know, good mates with Quentin and that and Alan. So, yeah, we thought, why not give it a spin? Yeah, we all we all tried just the three of us to to, to sing the songs, but when you sound like this, and you know, it's there's no chance really. So, you know, I, I was out. Quentin, perhaps slightly too avant-garde, would have been coming across with some of his vocals. And Clive, well, there's a, there's a reason you never hear him do backing vocals in on any of the old singles. So, the band now comprises of three musicians. Sans a singer. And that's a big problem for a rock band of any time. But help was going to be on its way from an unexpected source. You know, my, my daughter, uh, Nicola, she, she loves all this reality TV nonsense. And uh, she's, you know, she said that there was uh, somebody on the voice or the ex ex force or something x factor i think it was and uh, they'd gone through to the final you know doing one of our numbers cover uh, fall of mercury uh, in on on that x factor thingy now fall of mercury was before my day there's a brian madden classic and we had a listen back bloke sounded just like chris gibson so we thought right well it is a trick see if he wants to come on tour with us it was very similar to gibbo he had all the same affectations vocally he had a slightly higher range, but he could hit all the notes right when you wanted to, and he never backed out of a single one. But yes, John John agreed to join us. Um, his his fame as an X Factor contestant certainly didn't hurt in the modern days of reality obsessed populace. A lovely fella, young lad, like, but you know the. They're not the same rock stars of that day. They're a bit more sensible and, you know, he came to work, did his business, you know. None, no craziness, none of Chris's, you know, piping in salt air in or, you know, having to have, you know, all the sultanas taken out of his uh, muesli or something, you know. It was none of that. So, um, so that was nice. So, yeah, uh, we recorded, a, you know, did a, did a couple of shows playing all the old numbers and the energy was there. So yeah, we we went on, you know, going to record a new album, going to be back in one tour, biggest one for a bit, you know, going to play lots of stuff, 50th anniversary of the album's coming out, so I need a few quid, Christmas and that, so yeah, hopefully once we we can, we'll get, the, get ourselves back together again, get back out on the road and 
you know, get everybody fished in again. Things, sir. So, yes, and, and that is how we carry on to this day. Uh, things have been somewhat curtailed due to the pandemic, but we're still still planning on recording. Um, and uh, if we can, touring, if people still uh, if people still seem to want it. So, um, yes, you know, we are we are still going. Um, I think we've we've outlasted all of them. We've outlasted Zeppelin. We've outlasted Sabbath. Uh, outlasted Status Quo. Well, I, I think so. Anyway, uh, we've we've outlasted all of them. You know, and and the 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 power fist is still still fisting strong. Yes, excellent stuff. It's given us a new lease of life having uh, John with us. I, I, I never thought I'd be so happy to see an X Factor contestant day in day out, but there we are. You know, the to- the band's been great. We've all had a jolly old time. You know, although we're all a bit worse for wear from all the years, I've had three shoulders replaced, my elbows on both my arms done as well. You know, we're, we're a bit like Trigger's broom at this point. But, you know, if one of us falls by the waist, I'm sure we'll be replaced, and Power Fist will keep on going, because it's, it's it's bigger than us as individuals now. But yeah, we got we got a lot coming up, new tour, hopefully, as well as a few other projects. And what other projects might that be? Well, the band did reveal to us that they are have been in talks with Ben Elton and Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber about bringing Space Fist in to a West End stage. Now, obviously, because of the pandemic, things have been slightly curtailed. But they remain optimistic that at some point soon you'll be able to see a robot and a marmoset fall in love and pay £45 for the pleasure of it. Um, yeah, anyway, it's been a lovely time talking about all this, the ups and downs and what have you, and, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be good to be back on the road, I think, you know. I think the wife will be glad to see the back of us, frankly. Uh, there's only so many bass solos a poor lass can put up with. Anyway, that's it. Pleasure talking to you, chaps, and it's been good going over the the, the old days and the new, and uh, all the very, very best to you and your listeners and viewers. Thank you. What a 50 years it's been. I mean, it's been such a wonderful thing to be able to look back with it all over this, all over this hour and a bit with you and... Uh, you know, I, I can't believe her dad wanted us all out of the house. I mean, he's married to my sister. It's a bloody outrage. I'll have to give her a phone call about that in a minute, actually. And whatever else lies ahead for the band, you can be sure that they will do exactly what they've always done. Clench them tight and keep on fisting. <laughs>